If you're a drinker and you get thrown out of every pub you drink in, you probably come to the realization you've got a problem a lot quicker than if every third pint you get a free one. Paul Buck says it quite often, he'd love to shut the doors of Epic tomorrow because gambling harm has been, been stopped. You know, realistically, like with any addiction, it's going to exist forever. When I was 18, uh, I, first thing I did was I applied for a credit card. I spent all of that credit card limit on gambling and nobody ever contacted me. I cut the card up and I never made a payment back to them. So there's nobody really that's better to advise on on change that people, than people that have been through an addiction. Uh, and I would say that to any listeners out there now is, you know, that there'll be episodes of ours and other podcasts as well where you can go and listen to uh, a gambler tell their story through addiction. And I think you owe it to yourself. If you work in this industry, you should hear somebody say that. Welcome to the Gambling Harm podcast, a podcast from Epic Risk Management, in which we will be looking at all aspects of gambling harm, including the work done by Epic across various sectors. I'm Steve Cotton, and I'll be joined on every episode by a different guest or guests from Epic's Lift Experience team. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dan Spencer and Dave Sproson. On this episode, we will be talking about positive changes being made in the industry. But before we get into that, can you each tell us the very short version of your journey with gambling and how you ended up at Epic Risk Management? Yeah, it has to be the very short version. Um, I was addicted to gambling for 16 years, so we'll abbreviate that down to... Um, kind of becoming involved in gambling through the ages of about 15 to 18, I think, was my proper introduction. Although, as a kid, you know, there was a lot of gambling in the household. Um, my gambling kind of quickly progressed through, um, it started off as poker. I wanted to be a professional poker player. Um, and it ended up kind of casino play, uh, bookmakers, a lot of online slot machines. Um, and the, the addiction turned quite severe. I ended up in recovery five years ago. And three years into my recovery, I found out about Epic Risk Management um, through looking up some of the, the great work they were doing with, with sports clubs. And uh, yeah, I joined, joined Epic three years ago um, to be part of the Safer Gambling team. And I'm now director of Safer Gambling. Sure. So, I mean, mine's probably even shorter than that, I think. Um, I grew up with my mum, who's a recovering alcoholic. Um, and as part of her alcoholism, she also used to spend a large portion of her wages she got from working in a pub on the fruit machines trying to win the money back. So I kind of grew up with the mentality of, I'm never gonna gamble, never gonna get addicted to gambling. Um, and for me, my addiction came in when I was 24, um, and it was in the form of loot box gambling. Um, at the time, and you know, still most people these days don't consider it gambling, and so I don't think I was fully prepared to go through what I went through. Um, that happened to me over the period of about 12 months, um, and ended up with me spending money that was meant for my child that was due to be born soon. Um, as well as the deposit that me and my partner had saved up for a house. Um, not long after that, I got introduced by my cousin to a company that I went to work for that was a gambling operator. Um, and I started working for them as somebody that would check their chat logs that went through and the chats that were coming through from the customers and keep an eye out for any potentially concerning comments that were made. And I've progressed in my ranks since then to the head of Safer Gambling Point. Um, at about 12 months ago, it got to a point where I knew that I wasn't making the change that I wanted to do within the industry. So I started to look externally at, you know, safer gambling providers, which is how I come across Epic. Um, and I joined the team in last July. And that's how I got to the head of safer gambling position that I hold now. 
Epic grows so fast that there's always new people appearing on the website. So keep, keeping up with, with the team is quite difficult. And um, I think also keeping up with how the industry is changing is probably quite difficult, but we will get onto that. Um, but Dan, if I could come to you first, yeah, we're going to talk about, I guess, changes that are being made. Now, your, your story that you, you told us in very brief summary there, if that started today, would it have happened? Would it have got to the point it did? given how the industry has developed and grown and changed over the past 15, 20 years? Yeah, I think when you look at where the industry is today, uh, it's a very different landscape than it was five to 10 years ago. And I think the, the main predominant difference that you will see today is the level of technology that they have in identifying those that are at risk. I think the, um, the big learning I had coming from completely outside this industry I worked in uh, supermarkets for 15 years before before I found myself in this business, so a world away. Um, is I thought, okay, I'm I'm, I've, I'm in my recovery from my addiction. I'm a few years in. I feel good. I want to help others, and I found Epic, and I really wanted to be a part of their journey. You say about how quickly we've grown since then. I think I was employee number 13, and we're now up to you know 45 or something. Um, Coming into to, to Epic, I didn't seek out to work with the industry. Um, and it was something that I was kind of given as a project. We'd done a, a few bits with uh, with a couple of operators up to that point, but quite low-level training. Um, and there really was, I think, a need and a desire to provide consultancy, strategic advice, be part of a journey in improving an entire industry, not, not just a couple of operators. And... Um, the outside view from myself was, well, how hard can it be to find the customers that are spending the money and stop them doing it? You know, it just seemed very, an easy problem to solve. And I could not have been more wrong. You know, once you start getting into the, the operator side of things behind the nuts and bolts, it's extremely nuanced. I think we all know by this point that gambling harm is not just caused by losing money. You know, there's, there's so many other things you can look at. We're partnered with a company, a Danish company called Mindway AI. We have a strategic partnership because we've got so many clients that we both have. And they use, I think it's 28 markers in their algorithm of ways that harm can be measured. And all of them together create a profile of the customer. So to take my long-winded answer back to your very simple question about whether this could happen today, Steve, I think yes and no. Uh, one thing that sticks out for me uh, of the, the large lived experience base that we have at Epic is nobody, to my knowledge, was ever contacted by a gambling company throughout their addiction to say, we've picked up this stuff from our side and we're concerned about you. And we would like to give you the opportunity to reflect on your gambling. Here's some tools and, and things that we've got in place that we, we could do for you. None of that ever happens. You know, those of us that did speak to operators, it was us that initiated the call. It probably wasn't a very fruitful conversation. It was probably kind of anger-led and result-driven and give-me-my-money-back type interaction. It's not an early stage where you can stop some of that harm happening because we've seen some signs that are not gambling harm, but they, they show risk level increase, right? So I think if my story happens today... If I go back and I gambled like I did, you know, when I was 18, uh, the first thing I did was I applied for a credit card. I spent all of that credit card limit on gambling and nobody ever contacted me. I cut the card up and I never made a payment back to them and it defaulted. You know, all of that kind of behavior, which ultimately is driven by lack of education in, you know, 
I didn't know what would happen if you didn't pay a credit card back, for example. If I do that today, an alarm goes off in an office somewhere and it says, you better reach out to this guy because he's going off the rails, right? Uh, and that can happen to an 18-year-old as they, they start gambling. It can happen to anybody at any stage in their life when they deviate from their standard patterns of gambling. Now, that wasn't in place when I was gambling. So to answer the question, it can't happen without anybody knowing about it today. And I like to think that where we're going and where, where certainly a lot of the large operators are is that they have well-placed, well-trained experts that would reach out and initiate a fruitful conversation that enables me to reflect on my gambling. The, the reason I can't give you a definitive yes is how, it, how I would have responded to that interaction. But the analogy I always use is if you're a drinker and you get thrown out of every pub you drink in, you probably come to the realisation you've got a problem a lot quicker than if every third pint you get a free one. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, one one thing that leapt out at me there that is an instant change that someone who has, has never suffered from gambling harm has spotted in what you said is credit card. Now, that's one change that, that I know about. Mm. So that, that's that's one thing that's different, isn't it? Before you even take into consideration well, for AI the UK and behavior market, patterns. For the right. UK market, okay. right? So still in Europe, you can still use credit cards. Right. For example, in the US, you can still use credit cards. We're working all over the world. So certainly we're in that place at the moment where I feel the UK is more protected than the rest of the world, or certainly the majority of the world. Um, you know, there's a couple of countries across Europe that are doing some quite radical things. And I think time will tell whether, whether that's a positive or not. Um, but yeah, certainly in the UK, we, we are more protected than some jurisdictions right now. But of course, we are dealing with a, a, a proportion of, you know, an undefensible proportion of the population that are suffering from gambling rates. Harm. So to to some instances, you could say, well, we should be the most protected. We've got a big problem, you know, with it. So that's where we are right now. But I think we need to we need to rise the tide to float all ships around the around the world. That's the the game now is raising the high water mark because we've got customers that are living across the border in Northern Ireland where one is protected to a certain level and the other isn't. The next street over, you know, that's what we need to fix next. Dave, going back to the question before, I guess is that you know your your story. Now, I think you might give a slightly different answer that you know, given the nature of your gambling. So if, if your story happened today, you know, would there be check that some of the checks that we've talked about through maybe um, the online operators that, that we see through, whether it's casino, whether it's sports book, or, or would the same risks and the same things still be in play? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question, but it's, it's a case that comes down to regulation. And in the UK currently, loot boxes are still considered not a form of gambling. And so the companies that offer loot boxes are game companies and game developers and so they don't have a need to have any sort of social responsibility or responsible gambling interactions with with their clients and with their customers and so whereas if you were gambling with an operator on a casino game and you were to spend a thousand pounds a day that would set off alarm bells internally to a lot of these game developers they just don't exist and I'm still in touch now with some people that I spoke to early on when I went through my addiction that even today, still gamble on these loot boxes. Um, and, you know, it, make no mistake, it is, it is gambling. You know, it's it's the act of placing money to get a desired outcome of which you're not guaranteed to get. 
And the only loophole that it kind of goes through is the fact that with a loot box, you always get something out of them. Whereas with a, with a gamble, with a casino, it's win or lose. So it's not quite the same. And the terminology that I always go down or the route that I always go down is that if you're playing on a slot game and you put 20 quid in per spin and you win 15p off, off your win, you've still won by definition, but you're still lost because you're down. Loot boxes are the exact same. You might want that legendary or that mythical item that's the best one that you can get, but the chances are you're going to get the low end of that item. And so really, you know, there's not a difference when you look at the two products. The only difference is that one of these elicits a response from highly trained teams that work for the organizations and the other doesn't. And it's still quite the opposite. You know, if you were to look at the gambling industry 10 years ago, somebody in Dan's position where he's losing substantial amounts of money would be bombarded with promotions, reward emails that actually incentivize you to spend more because they see you as a high roller or a VIP. And it's the same with these games now. And, you know, I can speak from my experience of if I deposited and paid £500 for a, you know, multiple packs of loot boxes, I would then be bombarded, bombarded the next day with offers and emails saying, if you purchase 10 more of these at this cost, $89.99, we'll give you a guaranteed legendary in that pack. Um, and on top of that, they started to compound things similar to the gambling industry with reward point systems, whereby you would spend all loyalty point systems, however you want to call them. You spend so much money, earn loyalty rewards that gave you spins on a roulette type wheel or, a, you know, the family fortune wheels where it'd stop on a prize, similar sort of things. But you could only redeem them on these features and you could only get certain rewards from them. Um, so, yeah, you know, in, in a roundabout way to answer the question, I think even if I was to start buying loot boxes again today or anybody starts buying loot boxes today they go through the exact same thing or could go through the exact same thing that I went through um, with no real safety measures whatsoever the only thing that has changed is a number of these games now do enable things like two-factor authentication when it comes to card payments and so to a degree miners are more protected these days because they can't access parents credit cards or parents bank cards as easily uh, because you need to go into the app and authenticate the the, the purchase but for people like myself that was an adult that had access to credit cards which you can still use on these games you know there's there's no extra protection there for me and realistically even that second sort of stop of me thinking you know the seconds it takes me to swap apps on my phone between the game that I was playing to my banking app there's not really any steps in place that says you know are you sure you want to do this it's just a case of putting your pin code and press approve and you're done it, it you know is is there and I've often I've often wondered this. Is there a degree of responsibility on banks as well? Or, because I think looking at it, you can you can see that if a if a Premier League football player is is spending ten thousand pounds a week, that's not a problem financially, is it to him? But if if someone on a minimum wage is spending a hundred pounds a week, then it is. Is is there any cooperation, or is 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 there discussions about being any cooperation between, say, financial operators and gambling operators in terms of affordability checks? Is that something that's sort of you know the wheels are in motion for, or how does it happen? Certainly, no legal responsibility on right now. I mean, if you're asking a, a moral question about whether there should be, I think yes, but I think the question is how do you do it? Because ultimately, you're you're talking about. In what way, Dan, do we trade off privacy and freedom of how I spend my money versus safeguarding? You know, w would you want your bank calling you up if you've had McDonald's three times in a week? You know, w at what point do you stop, I guess? Uh, I think it was fairly obvious in my case that if anybody had looked at my bank account, they would have been severely shocked by how I was spending my money. And I don't think anybody in their right mind could have looked at that account and said, 
well, it's up to him. You know, it's it, it was disgusting. You know, it was page after page after page of gambling operator deposits. Um, I wasn't a high roller. Uh, I was working in the supermarket. I earned, you know, less than £2,000 a month. And on an average monthly basis, I would say I probably had 50 plus online gambling transactions every month, uh, spending the, to- the total of my salary and then borrowing money. So I had 75 online gambling accounts uh, towards the end of my gambling, which is an extremely stressful way to live even just remembering usernames, passwords, where your money is, what promotions you're, you're a part of. Um, but also 75 online accounts, one bank account. You know, if anybody had asked to see source of funds, I couldn't do it. You know, not without outing all, all, all of these um, the, these online accounts I was using. If, if the wife had seen the bank account, it would have been game over. It was, you know, that was the key really to unlock everything, but, but nobody was asking to see it. So I think it's a very... again a much more difficult conversation than it initially first appears to be this is interesting and we we talk obviously we're here in the uk epic works all over the world um i mean you you mentioned earlier about the protection that that is offered and you know whether that goes far enough or not i suppose is, is up for debate but looking at some of the the emerging markets the usa is obviously one where epic are doing an awful lot of work now as a as a nation, I guess as a as a culture, it seems quite different. There, a kind of don't tell us what to do culture that a lot of individuals have. That the power is on the individual. We're probably nowhere near seeing, are we, in in the United States, the full extent of what might happen. I guess we've got a case study here in the UK, but you know, is that something that that you're looking at, and you know, whether it's professionally or whether it's just for a sort of personal interest in how it might develop and how it might explode? Is is, is the USA something that, that intrigues you? Oh yeah, definitely. I think um, it's uh, it's a very dangerous um, potential situation, but at the same time, we could be looking at a country that's about to do it right, you know, or completely do it correctly and show us, us how we messed up where we shouldn't have done. Potentially, um, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think they they will learn their own lessons over there uh, and we'll do everything we can to help them learn that in the right way uh, I think what's surprising me at the moment um, in new markets all around the world you know you take this news today coming out of Netherlands that they've got a blanket ban on gambling advertisement well that's that's a very new market the, the online um, legalized gambling market in Netherlands is about two years old and um and we've already seen a blanket ban on advertisement in, in the USA we're looking at a market around the the same level of maturity and we've got a federal bill looking to do a very similar thing with digital advertisement whether it gets through or not it's another question but as of time of recording you know we're, we're starting to see these um these bills come out that are fairly radical in you know stopping that risk level in after a short time and in a very sharp way now i don't think a healthy gambling market should really get to the place where it's really over-legislated and really over-regulated very, very quickly. Um, and we've certainly seen that in a few places right now. Um, but where it ends up at this point, Steve, who knows, but certainly we're seeing the growth there. We're seeing the risk there. We've seen some mistakes being made. Um, but I'm just happy that we're instilled with the right operators, you know, circa 85% of market share in the US. So we, we can have a real big impact in making sure that 
yeah, there's lessons from the UK to learn and, uh, you know, don't make the same mistakes that we did, I guess. Yeah, I think you touched on a really good point there of, you know, we've got a wealth of history now in the UK of how not to do things as well as what works. And I think the biggest thing that we can give to the US when we deliver our training to them is that experience. You know, we've been through the motions of what works and what doesn't work. And they really have the benefit of being able to capitalize on that if they want to. Um, it's ultimately going to come down to the same tug of war that happens with all operators, whether it's commercial versus the compliance. And we always use that as, a, as an expression, don't we? There has to be a healthy tug of war. Neither side of the argument can ever win because if it does, you're onto a loser in one way or another. If the compliance overly wins, the commercial side of the business falls down. But if the commercial generally wins, the compliance falls down. And that's where you lead to things like regulatory settlements, fines, loss of license and implications that you ha have to put on your customers in terms of restrictions as well. So there's definitely lessons that can be learned. As for whether or not they take all of the advice that's given on board, well, you know, that's time will tell. Um, and like Dan said, there is going to be a case of they're going to have to make their own mistakes and they're going to have to learn from them. The only benefit that they do have as well is that the technology today is so much more advanced than it was for us back when, you know, the UK started gambling. And so when these needs and these legislative changes come about, the technology already exists around the world to implement. Whereas in the UK, it was very much a reactive measure of this is going to happen. And so we need a solution. Right now, the solution's already there ahead of time. And so there is that benefit that some some of the clients that we work with are already utilizing those technologies to make sure that the same mistakes don't happen. We just need to see those companies embrace that technology, I think, because right now you've got a market where people are jostling for position, they're jostling for market share. We're only just now seeing the first couple of companies start to break even and start to go into to profit. Up until now, it's all about acquisition, you know, and conversion. Um, and I think now you, you've got a player base. You need to make sure it's sustainable. That's that's kind of the next step of, of where we go. And I think if you boil gambling down to what it is as a market, you take a country or a set of countries, you give them uh, an entertainment activity where people that can afford it can partake and others don't. Everybody has fun and ultimately society wins because of the taxation. But society doesn't win if it starts wrecking neighbourhoods, you know, communities around the place. So as long as they've got that balance right and they embrace, like Dave said, all of all of the positives that are going in their favour that weren't around when the UK market was emerging, then they'll be in a good footing. Yeah. But in terms of freedom, they haven't been used to having free gambling. You know, they've not had those freedoms in the past. They've had black market bookmakers is, is all they've had. So they're not losing out on anything. I mean, we still don't have iGaming in the USA, for example. So uh, there's no loss of freedom yet. But if you start banning advertisement and over-regulating and everything like that, then yeah, potentially you give the American market a taste of something that you then take away from them. Obviously, every country has different characteristics that the people of a, of a country, you know, even within that country are very different, obviously. Um, and a lot, obviously, regulation is set by governments and governments change. Is there a country that, to your mind, is doing things particularly well at the moment? Now, I appreciate that could change. Um, and, you know, it isn't really a kind of an easy question necessarily but is, is there one area where you look at and think oh you know they're doing it really well yeah it's a really difficult one to answer because i think it's a case of different jurisdictions do different things better than each other um you know for example in the uk right now we're quite good when it comes to things like source of funds requests and source of wealth requests and the the requirement on having to do so 
it's quite enshrined in like the LCCP, for example. Whereas when you look at things like what those specific thresholds are, there aren't any. So a lot of the onus on responsible gambling is put on the operator and the terms of the license conditions just state that it should be within an affordable range. They don't give any specific measure as to what that could mean. Whereas other countries, for example, such as the MGA, give specific thresholds who, depending on the country they come from, have thresholds that they need to have certain interactions at. And that works to a degree, um, and as much as it ensures that no matter what happens, that customer will have an interaction at that point. But the areas that that comes into play that could be better is the levels at which the deposits are. So, for example, a lot of the initial checks or requirements on, on an MGA license is at around €5,000. Now, €5,000 is a substantial amount of money. And what they are getting better at is the, the behavioural triggers that come into play before that threshold. So if you were a person that's deposited €5,000 today in one day and it's the first time you've made the account, that's far more concerning than somebody that's had that account for six years and have hit €5,000 deposits. And so what they're, what they're focusing on and what we did in the past in the UK a lot of was use other triggers to meet in with them, to tie in with those, to make sure that they're effective. And it's, I think, a combination of both of those work. You know, the behavioral triggers are absolutely important. And companies like Mindway, looking at the data that they use and the triggers that they use, come into play earlier. And it's an early detection system. But also ensuring that you have those higher level thresholds that no matter what, as a fail safer in there, those work. And ultimately, again, it comes down to the country that they operate in and how those, you know, the people within those countries behave. You know, you touched on it a moment ago where you said that, you know, people are different in different countries. So people in the US, for example, that are not used to having social interactions like we have in the UK, if they receive a phone call from a gambling operator today that's asking them, you know, who they work for, how much their paycheck is, how much their bills are, what else do they spend their money on? They're probably going to be really taken aback by that, potentially offended by that, and as part of that are less willing to to give that information, which doesn't then prevent harm because they can go to somewhere else and do it. The UK, for example, that now has a history of answering those questions and a history of having to give bank statements when we apply for credit or give all this information out to companies to be able to understand our credit worthiness is probably way more inclined to give that. And so when you're used to giving that and you then give the information forward, they can put restrictions in place or help you come to an understanding of what's affordable for you. And so harm can be prevented. I think my short answer to your question is no. <laughs> I, I can't think of a country around the world where I, I could look at their regulators and say they really get it, you know, they're really doing this. I think that the UK is probably one of the better ones um, and it's still miles away. You know, I, I think that we need much more collaboration between the industry itself and the regulators. And I think a lot of regulators shy away from that because they want that distance between the, the businesses that they're regulating and, and those that are doing the regulating. But I honestly think that there's much more to learn um, and better cohesion to be had. We see that in the UK. We see that in other countries in Europe, you know, that there's some interesting stuff going on. You've got in Germany, a single customer view, the Lukash system, where we, we've got customers that have £1,000 to spend amongst as many operators as they want, but then it's capped. Um, and if they're excluded, they're excluded from everyone. I can't tell you if that's working because we haven't had it for long enough. So we need to keep an eye on that market. But I think it's always good to see reg regulators do something different because whenever they do that, the world learns. 
and if they end up copying the UK GC, which we, we've seen for a number of years, you do only end up with one kind of style of, of regulating. Um, but I don't think we do a really great job of pulling together those lessons from around the world and coming up with a model of losing things that don't work and, and picking best practice, really. It's, it's interesting. Um, in terms of, I suppose, your your role as a safer gambling team, um, it would be far too... Well, it, it would be a simplistic question with an incredibly difficult answer, I suppose, to say, what does the safer gambling team do? But in, in terms of the, some of the work you're doing... Um, you know, how would you summarize essentially what, what you're trying to achieve? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, Epic's goal as a whole is to take the harm out of gambling. And so within every pillar of Epic, our focus is on prevention. And the way that we do that specifically within the Safer Gambling pillar is through our education programs that we do training with operators. Um, and that can go from awareness sessions of gambling-related harm all the way to our interaction sessions, which is a masterclass and an excellence session. Um, that speci specifically focuses on how to interact with customers and get a desired outcome that's beneficial for both the operator and the customer. It focuses on how to detect harm early as well. And when you detect that harm, how do you analyze that? And how do you approach that with the customer? Because that's often the most difficult part to do is how you approach that with a customer to make them understand or help them understand what's going on, but also give you an understanding. Outside of the education programs that we do, we do numerous works with consultancy. Um, and one of the most interesting things that we do, I think, is we do the quality analysis from some of our clients of their phone calls. So we actually receive the phone calls that they've completed internally, and we listen to the discussions that's been had between the agent and the, the customer. And then what we have is our lived experience, um, people that work within our pillar, listen to that phone call and actually detect whether harm is occurring or not. We then work with the client specifically to help them understand where the harms occurred because they have their own internal QA that gets completed that helps them to make sure that process is being adhered to. Um, but obviously from a lived experience point of view, we are able to identify things that if people that don't have lived experience were to listen to may not pick up on. And so it adds an added layer of security to that. Um, and I think when it comes to things like harm prevention, that's probably one of the best things that we can do. Is that, is that an area where, where you've seen improvements? Because whether it's online or, or even talking earlier to, to Paul Finley about land-based casinos, he was saying now even, even the door staff have a much better understanding than, say, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even five. You know, that whole operators and, and everyone or, or a wider spread of people within the organisation seem, seem to know what they're looking for. Is that something that you feel is, is something that, that is gradually happening? Yeah, it's certainly gradually happening. And, and you see, we mentioned about the USA earlier versus the UK, that they're obviously behind in their, their journey. So you have to be careful, I think, as a consultancy, at, at the type of um, services that you're offering a market. So if I give you a couple of examples, the, the, the biggest thing we have in the UK and the Europe right now is trusted relationships with those operators. Because we've been working with them for five years now, um, and we're at the place where Dave, like Dave says, we're doing quality analysis of phone calls. I think if you're a startup today and you go to a gambling operator and you say, let me from home randomly listen to calls that you're making to your customers and tell you if they're any good or not, you know, they're going to tell you where to go. You know, it's, it's a very closed shop. Um, but once you've been working with them for a few years and built up that trust, you can do it. So you add more value, you know, back to that, that operator. 
again, that's not something we're really doing in the USA right now because, I mean, our, our model of training and consultancy is, you know, we learn from lived experience. That That's what we do. So step one really is you start telling the stories. You know, you want as many people within that operator to have heard somebody who's been through gambling addiction talk about it. Because that does a couple of things, right? It raises the knowledge. Uh, it kickstarts a bit of a culture change within the business, especially if you tell that story to everyone. And we've certainly done that with operators where we've hosted, uh, you know, huge um, series of Zoom calls to get everybody in the organization to have heard it. And I, I'm a really big believer, actually, that if you work in gambling, you should hear one of these stories. Uh, and I would say that to any listeners out there now is, you know, that there'll be episodes of ours and other podcasts as well, where you can go and listen to uh, a gambler tell their story through addiction. And I think you owe it to yourself. If you work in this industry, you should hear somebody say that. So we do that first to raise the buy-in. Next stage is we go in with targeted training. The training Dave's just spoken about, you know, how do you spot the signs in a customer? Whether that be kind of land-based, you know, was we're asking uh, the guys at the casino, have you ever had an interaction with a customer? And of course they have, because they need to record it, but they're all very quite low level. Uh, And it was one of the door guys said, well, uh, this man came out, head in the hands and said, oh, I've lost five grand. And the doorman thought, well, that's not really my job, you know, uh, and he, he's not kicking off, you know, <laughs> I feel sorry for the guy, but it's not much, but it is his job, you know, it's, it's part of the casino, uh, you know, the fabrication of player safety should start you know, on the walk from your car, you know, or the way back. I mean, the, the amount of times I was in my car, kind of head in my hands, oh no, I've done it again, you know, uh, after a valet's dropped off the, the car, you know, all of those people can help. Uh, so we're trying to get to everyone, raise buy-in, raise knowledge, deliver the training. Then the consultancy comes in, I think. you know, How do we change? We've got a staff base full of people that want to make a positive change now. What are the targeted things we can do? And where we've got relationships, certainly around Europe and now in the USA, where we are trusted by those operators, all sorts of work comes out of that. You know, They come to us with the their latest advertisement campaign and say, you know, is this going to help uh, as a responsible gambling campaign? Does it use the right language? Can you go and review our website? Uh, one of our teams are, have invented a safer gambling tool. Do you think this will work, Dan? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll get the 26 people that work at Epic that have been through gambling addiction to tell you if it's going to work. And they don't hold back their feelings, Steve. You know, they get really great feedback. Uh, so, yeah, all sorts of really exciting and interesting work. And, um, you know, working with these guys who are trying to innovate to protect people. We speak to a lot of people about about various stages of, of lived experience, various stages of recovery, and and you know how your journey sort of continues. One thing that sort of fascinates me about your story: the first time that you, I guess, stood up to talk to a room of operators about your story, like it was that quite nerve wracking. And what sort of response did it elicit? And and do you find yourself almost or find the other people, the operators, kind of think, feeling maybe a bit bad, feeling a bit guilty. Is it are they shifting a bit awkwardly sometimes when you stand there and tell that story? Yeah, for sure, for sure. But that's kind of what you want, you know. It depends what audience you're talk, talking to. You know, we we've delivered um, to the boards of the biggest operators in the world, you know, and to a degree they know what they're in for when they invite, 
you know, it's usually me and Paul Buck, the CEO, that will go in and tell our stories and do a bit of an overview of the landscape of gambling and where we think regulations go in, how your business is operating, all that kind of stuff. And they know what they're in for. But other days you're delivering that story to a call centre of, you know, quite low paid, often lowly engaged, if that's a term, uh, you know, staff base who don't really know what they're in for. Um, and whether that's because, you know, the turnover is quite high in that environment. So somebody could be there their first week, their first month, or maybe they, they've got quite high tenure of working there, but have become jaded over the years. Customers become usernames. The amounts of money are more than these people earn in a month or a year. So they just become irrelevant, you know. And actually, after 10 minutes of telling your story and you see people that are on the edge of their street seats with their mouths open you've then got an engaged audience. So I think what's important is once you've done telling that story, you've elicited the emotional response, but you've increased knowledge and awareness and buy-in. What next? That's what's really important because if you leave the room at that point and there's no follow-on training, you've just left the most engaged audience you'll ever get that are ready to now hear about what they can do and you haven't followed it up. And I think in the past, that is what we have done where we've used lived experience not talking just for Epic, but any other lived experience company out there, is for the industry, telling the story isn't enough. You know, for, for sport education, when you're dealing with school kids, it's great because it's all about awareness. It's about that anchor point that if they get into trouble later in their life, they can think back to, oh, that's that time Scott came in and told his story, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but with the industry, this, this is their career. They need to know what to do. So that follow-up is really important. But yeah, I remember the first time I told my story was um, during COVID. Um, I joined Epic and we had, I think there was 13, comes to mind, dates all around the world. So I'd started this new job. You're going to fly to all these places and, and tell your story to gambling operate. Great, fantastic. One of them was in Antigua and I couldn't wait. And I ended up, of course, doing it on Zoom with palm trees in the background. Uh, but one of the most engaged audiences I've ever spoken to, you know. Uh, and you, it's nerve-wracking when you tell it the first time. Um, because, and you've found this, Dave, because you've just been doing some sessions for America, is when you're halfway through the story on, on a Zoom call, and I should add, most of our training's face-to-face, but occasionally you have to do some remote stuff. When you're halfway through, you've no idea how, how well it's going down. Because quite often the cameras are off, the mute buttons are on, and you think, is anyone getting this? Uh, and it's when you finish the story and the chat box goes popping off and the mute buttons come off and, and the questions are queuing up. You think, yeah, okay, they were listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll wrap up soon, guys. Appreciate your time, of course. Um, I suppose t- to finish, really, c- can you be optimistic? Obviously, you know... The work you do is is incredible. You're never gonna solve every situation, are you? And you know it is an ongoing an ongoing battle. But ca- can you be optimistic about some of the changes that we might see? And and, and I think we've probably got to get this podcast out fairly soon because the the rate of change and how quickly the industry moves. Of course, you know things do date fairly fairly quickly. But yeah, you know, ca- can you have a degree of optimism? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know. Paul Buck says it quite often. He'd love to shut the doors of Epic tomorrow because gambling harm has been been stopped. You know, realistically, like with any addiction, it's going to exist forever. But what we can do and be optimistic about is that if you look at the gambling industry now and you look at it 10 years ago, 
we've come on leaps and bounds in the last 10 years, even in the last two years, four years, it's changed so much in a, in a short period of time. Um, you know, is it going to ever be the perfect scenario? I don't know. One thing we can do more of is is learn from lived experience. There's nobody really that's better to advise on on change that people than people that have been through an addiction. Um, you know, and that lived experience isn't just lived experience of gambling gambling related harm. It's it's lived experience of working in the gambling industry. We have a you know a team member of ours who's got twenty odd years experience working in a high-end casino that's seen any number of scenarios that none of us will have ever seen in our addiction and it's about leveraging that experience from across the industry both lived experience of, of addiction and not to make sure that when we do these process changes and these regulation changes that it is for the better and that you know the heart the, the prevention is where it needs to be there's a load of stuff out there right now for you know gambling recovery but there's not enough prevention, which is why Epic was founded in the first place, right? Was that there isn't enough. And, you know, there still isn't. There still needs to be more. Um, and, and we do a large portion of it when it comes to working in schools. You know, we get involved with kids at young ages now and raise that awareness as a form of prevention. And that's the only way that we're going to do it, you know. So I'm really optimistic in, in, in that regard. Yeah, I think worldwide regulation on player protection isn't going to get worse. You know, it, it will continue to improve. I think the, the only way it really can get worse is if we overregulate, we throw the baby out with the bathwater, we end up driving people to the black market, which I think is a real threat, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a critical time in, in regulation right now. The, the UK review of legislation will no doubt change world regulation in some way, shape or form. So... Um, we need to continue to be the, the leaders in that. And um, I'm optimistic that as technology improves and we embrace it and more and more third-party solutions uh, continue to develop, we will be more equipped to have the safest gambling market we've ever had. Brilliant. Dave, Dan, thanks so much for, for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Gambling Harm Podcast and we will be back with another one shortly. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve.